0: June 28, 1914, was a summer day like any other in Europe. There was a light breeze, a warm summer sun. The Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie had traveled to Bosnia for a state visit. Bosnia just recently annexed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And on that day, the couple went to the capital city of Sarajevo to inspect their federal troop station there. And as they headed toward their destination, they narrowly escaped death when Serbian terrorists threw a bomb at their convertible car. However, their luck ran out later that day, when the Archduke's motorcade drove past 19-year-old Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip, who shot and killed Ferdinand and his wife at point-blank range. Austria-Hungary was furious, and with Germany's support, declared war on Serbia later that evening. And within days, Germany declared war on Russia, Serbia's ally, and invaded France via Belgium, which then caused Britain to declare war on Germany. On the other side of the Atlantic, the United States stayed neutral. America did not want to participate in these international diplomatic problems and alliances, but nevertheless championed and assisted with the expansion of the transatlantic economy. American businesses and consumers benefited from the trade generated as a result of the extended period of European peace, a peace which was no more. Welcome to another edition of Print the Legend, an AP U.S. history podcast where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in part one of our three-part series on the First World War, we look at the years before America entered the war, a period of time that tested America's resolve to avoid what George Washington called 120 years earlier, foreign alliances, attachments, and intrigues. The causes of World War I, also known as the Great War, have been debated since it ended. In fact, the cause of the First World War and the subsequent ground, sea, and air battles fought, along with the impacts of the Treaty of Versailles, well, they could take up 30 or more episodes of Print the Legend. However, for this series, we will examine the years that President Woodrow Wilson kept, quote, America out of war in part one and the U.S.'s involvement both at home and in Europe in Part 2, and then the role Wilson played in bringing about a temporary peace in Europe in Part 3. In the early days of war, as Britain and France struggled against Germany, American leaders decided it was in the national interest to continue trade with all sides, just as before. A neutral nation cannot impose an embargo on one side and continue to trade with the other and retain its neutral status. In addition, United States merchants and manufacturers feared that a boycott would cripple the American economy. Great Britain, with its powerful navy, had a different idea. A major part of the British strategy was to impose a blockade on Germany. American trade with the central powers simply could not be permitted. The results of the blockade were astonishing. Trade with England and France more than tripled between 1914 and 1916, while trade with Germany was cut by over 90%. It was this situation that prompted Submarine warfare by the Germans against Americans at sea. After two and a half years of isolationism, America then entered the Great War. But there were many other factors that pushed the United States into sending troops overseas, the doughboys as they arrived. With American trade becoming more and more lopsided towards the Allied cause, many feared that it was only a matter of time before the United States would be at war. The issue that propelled most American fence-sitters to side with the British was German submarine warfare. The British, with the world's largest navy, had effectively shut down German maritime trade. And because there was no hope of catching the British in the numbers of ships, the Germans felt that the submarine was their only key to survival. One U-boat could sink many battleships, only to slip away unseen. This practice would stop only if the British would lift their blockade. The isolationist American public had little concern if the British and Germans tangled on the high seas, for America was thousands of miles away, and life continued just as it normally does. However, that changed significantly with the sinking of the Lusitania. The Germans felt that they had done their part to warn Americans about the danger of overseas travel the German government purchased advertisement space in American newspapers, warning that Americans who traveled on ships carrying war contraband risked submarine attack. When the Lusitania departed New York, the Germans believed the massive passenger ship was loaded with munitions in its cargo hold. On May 7, 1915, a German U-boat torpedoed the ship without warning sending just over 1,100 passengers, including 128 Americans, into an icy grave. The Lusitania, as it turned out, was carrying over 4 million rounds of ammunition. President Wilson was enraged. The British were breaking the rules, but the Germans were causing death. Wilson's Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, recommended a ban on American travel on any ships of nations at war. Wilson preferred a tougher line against the German Kaiser, and he demanded an immediate end to submarine warfare, prompting Bryan to resign in protest. And Wilson had other reasons for leaning toward the Allied side. He greatly admired the British government, and democracy in any form was preferable to German authoritarianism. The historical ties with Britain also seemed to draw the United States closer to that side. Many Americans felt a debt to France for their help in the American Revolution. Several hundred volunteers already volunteered to fight with the French in 1916. In November of that year, Wilson campaigned for re-election with a peace platform. He kept us out of war, read his campaign signs, and Americans narrowly returned him to the White House. But peace was not to be. In February 1917, citing the unbalanced U.S. trade with the Allies, Germany announced a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. All vessels spotted in the war zone would be sunk immediately and without warning. Wilson responded by severing diplomatic relations with the German government. Later that month, British intelligence intercepted the notorious Zimmerman telegram. The German foreign minister sent a message courting support from Mexico in the event that the United States should enter the war. Now, Zimmerman promised Mexico a return of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, territories that they had lost in 1848. Relations between the United States and Mexico were already strained, The U.S. had sent troops across the border in search of Pancho Villa, who had conducted several cross-border raids of American towns. And failing to find Villa, the troops had been withdrawn only in January 1917. And despite recent souring between a Mexico and a northern neighbor of the United States, the Mexican government declined the offer. Germany did not have a friend south of the border. In a calculated move, though, Wilson released the captured telegram to the American press. America is now ready to enter the war. A tempest of outrage followed. More and more Americans began to label Germany as the true villain of the Great War. When German subs sank several American commercial ships in March, Wilson had an even stronger hand to play. And on April 2, 1917, he addressed Congress, citing a long list of grievances against Germany. Four days later, by a wide margin in each house, Congress officially declared war on Germany and the U.S. was plunged into the bloodiest battle in history. Still, the debate lived on. Two senators and 50 representatives voted against the war, including the first female ever to sit in Congress, Jeanette Rankin of Montana. And although a clear majority of Americans now supported the war effort, there were large segments of the populace who still needed convincing. The United States was developing a nasty pattern of entry major conflicts woefully unprepared. When Congress declared war in April 1917, the Army had had enough bullets for only two days of fighting. The Army was small in numbers at only 200,000 soldiers. In fact, two-fifths of these men were members of the National Guard, which had only been recently federalized. The type of warfare currently plaguing Europe was unlike any the world had ever seen. Through Belgium and France, and it was the site of a virtual stalemate since the early years of the war. A system of trenches had been dug by each side. Machine gun nests, barbed wire, and mines blocked the opposing side from capturing the enemy trench. Artillery shells, mortars, flamethrowers, and poison gas were employed to no avail. The defensive technology was simply better than the offensive technology. Even if an enemy trench was captured, the enemy would simply retreat into another dug 50 yards behind. Each side would repeatedly send their soldiers over the top of the trenches into the no-man's land of almost certain death with very little territorial gain. Now, young American men would be sent to these killing fields. That concludes part one of our three-part series of the Great War, Wilson keeping the United States neutral. But as we will find out in part two, the United States will be fighting the war on two fronts, both at home and in Europe. It's not as popular as one might see. And in part three, we'll take a look at Wilson's temporary peace that was brought about in Europe through the Treaty of Versailles, his 14 points, and the League of Nations. I'm your host, Mr. Nassosi, and we thank you for joining us in this edition of Print the Legend, an APUS history podcast where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. We'll see you next time.